Welcome to the official Old Patrol HQ podcast. I'm Gil Maza, an agent for almost 24 years out of the San Diego sector. I've always admired and respected our rich, action-packed, and colorful heritage. My journeymen were hardcore, kick-ass alien catchers, and they passed on their knowledge, experience, and all their bad habits <laughs> onto the next generation. This podcast is dedicated to making the Old Patrol come alive and celebrate the history, heritage, and legacy of all things Old Patrol with a few shenanigans along the way. We will explore all the great customs, traditions, experiences, and adventures that make the patrol the best job on the planet. Ain't no patrol like the Old Patrol. Honor first, honor always. Greetings to my Old Patrollers, Border Patrollers, family and friends. I'm very excited this morning as we debut the very first episode of the Old Patrol HQ podcast. I'm your host, Gil Maza, acting patrol agent in charge of Old Patrol HQ because everyone knows it's my wife that's the actual pack of this station. Today we debut with a special guest interview, retired patrol inspector and accomplished author Donnie Daniels. He's an 85-year-old with an amazing career in law enforcement spanning over 45 years. Donnie joined the Border Patrol in March of 1967 in the 88th session. Right now we're in session 1570, that's a long time, and started in McAllen, Texas. Let's hear about his experiences in the Old Patrol. Greetings and good morning to you, sir, and welcome to the very first episode of the Old Patrol HQ podcast. Thank you, sir. First of all, I hope you and your family are holding up well uh, during this pandemic time in our country. Are you guys doing all right? Yes, we are. It's just uh, my wife and I uh, here, and, and we're not having We've got a, a granddaughter and a grandson here living in Deming and a couple of great-grandkids, and then I've got uh, a daughter and a granddaughter living in Billings, Montana, and, and we're all doing well. <laughs> we've been trying to some of the restaurants here have takeout and we've been trying to support them and it's a tough time for everybody yes, but sir. we're doing well glad to hear it glad to hear it sir so um what we're trying to accomplish here in Old Patrol HQ is to, you know, keep the history and the heritage and legacy of the Border Patrol alive, you know, with all the great stories and adventures and uh, what I like to say, a few shenanigans along the way. Um, <laughs> <and> the, <laughs> True. We all know that a lot has changed throughout the years since you started out in the patrol, and of course it's going to continue to change. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested initially in joining the patrol? Well, uh, at the time I was I was working with an armored uh, car company out of Dallas, and uh, they had a contract to haul money from the Federal Reserve to member banks all around up in the the Panhandle, Louisiana, and, and uh, South Texas, and I was delivering money to a, a bank in Ozona, Texas, and there was a border patrolman in there. Uh, letting one of his customers get his check, his check passed, and so I got talking to him. I had never heard of the Border Patrol, hmm. and uh, he told me they were going to go through a big hiring uh, process, and, uh, and I would apply for it, and so I went back and looked into it, took the test, and uh, and 
That's a thing you should say you never heard of the of the Border Patrol. Because I, I have I have no clue what the Border <laughs> Patrol was. I didn't even know they existed. Well, like I said, I, I started working when I was uh, 17 years old. I got married when I was 18 and uh, and had two children. And, 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 and in fact, Venice, I took a pay cut to come into the Border Patrol oh. because at that time, you were only making around eight thousand dollars a year. We figured out there was somewhere around three hundred and fifty dollars for a two-week period. In the in the in the border patrol? Yes, sir. Oh wow, three hundred and fifty bucks every two weeks. Wow. You know, I, I grew up in Douglas, Arizona, and I never had heard of the border patrol till way after I had left uh, I left my hometown to join the Marine Corps and when I was here in Oceanside, California after I had left the Marine Corps, that's, that was when I first heard of it, but growing up in Douglas right along the border, I had never even seen a Border Patrol agent or a vehicle or anything. <laughs> well, you know, there, there was not a lot of them. It's just like when I came into Rio Grande uh, City, which was, uh, I came into McAllen and halfway through the academy they transferred me and a old boy named Eddie Bentley who had been a DPS trooper. Uh, to Rio Grande City, and uh, they had an old saying about Rio Grande that only smugglers and politicians live there, and you associated <laughs> with the smugglers because they were a better class of people. <laughs> and uh, when we moved in, we we rented a little house. It cost us, I think, 50, forty or fifty dollars a month. Oh. And that, there was an older couple across the street from us, uh, Lola and Juan Alvarez, and. They adopted me and my family, and, and she would bring over at least once a week a whole cooked dinner. And oh. she taught my wife how to make uh, tortillas from scratch. Nice. And one made even made her a little uh, thing to roll out the tortillas, you know, a little wooden thing to roll out the tortillas. So that kind of disproved <laughs> the story about calling politicians smugglers live there because they were, were wonderful, wonderful people. Yes. Now, what was the academy like for you in that time? You went through Session 88. Um, where was that uh, Where was that located? That was in Los Fresnos, right outside, down, uh, down by uh, Arlington, uh, a little bit east of Arlington, uh -huh. and there toward Port Isabel. And uh, when, where I had problems, was the biggest, I didn't have problems with the law. Where I had problems was Spanish because I'm an Okie and you know Okies can't speak English very good <laughs> and when I went into the academy you know I didn't know how to say no in Spanish <laughs> and that's what I really had a problem with and uh, when I little through the academy and got out I remember the, the five and a half months exam at that time you'd go down and you'd, uh, you'd meet your alien and Mine was an assistant, either a chief or assistant chief out of Del Rio. I can't remember his name. Mm -hmm. But he called me outside and he said, I want to talk to you. And he said, you've got real good C&Es. It was conducting a fishing report. But he said, I understand you're having a little problem with Spanish. I said, no, sir, that's not right. I'm having a lot of trouble with Spanish. <laughs> he said, well, you're going to pass. And I said, well, I hope no. He said, listen to me. You're going to pass. Ah. So... You had those 40 questions, so I'm going through them. And I asked him, I, and he's sitting right across, he see where I'm writing. You have to write the answers in English. Mm -hmm. I asked him, 
do you have any scars or marks? And he replied, I have a large cut scar on my left something. I got everything but where it was at. I looked up, and of course he sees where I stopped writing. And I looked up, and he's rubbing his left elbow. (laughs) 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 I I remember Kodo for the rest of my life. (laughs) Very good. That's good. Um, Now, um, after the Academy, you reported to, you said to uh, McAllen, or was it, uh, you say Rio Grande Valley for your first duty station? Well, McAllen, was, I reported to McAllen, worked there a week, and then went straight to the Academy, and halfway through the Academy, they called me and Eddie Bentley, and because both of us were in McAllen, there was only three of us that came into McAllen, and uh, transferred us to Rio Grande City, and I had no idea where Rio Grande City was, mm-hmm. and, and I asked Eddie, I said, where in the world is Rio Grande City? It really made him mad. And his answer was, if they ever want to do an enema to Texas, that's where they'll stick the tube. <laughs> but it was, looking back, it was a, it was a really, a really a good place to work. And uh, they had a lot of good people there. I made uh, friends with uh, Border Patrol that we still stay in touch. Yes. Um, now, uh, one of the things that's one of the best parts of the patrol, I think you would agree, is the work, right? So tell us a little bit about what the work was like when you uh, when you first got in there and, and uh, what you did. Well, me and Ed were supposed to, like I say, being trainees, we were supposed to work with, uh, with uh, uh, senior officers, but uh, they took one look at us. Eddie's been a... a had come out of the DPS. He'd been a state trooper up at Kingsville, and uh, I had I had been and not in law enforcement, but I had been in that uh, armored car. And while I was in it, I also worked uh, as a uniform bouncer in Dallas under the last squad at, at bars because I had a lot of time off. And they kind of figured out, well, these guys don't need babysitting. They just put us in a car and said, "Go do what you want to, and call us if you need help." Oh, nice. So, there we were, two trainees, didn't have a, work, a clue of what we were doing, but we were catching loads of dope and, and smuggling loads. Yeah. And uh, like I said, it, it it was good work. We did a lot of still watch. We did sign cutting. Uh, a lot of nights we'd, we'd observe traffic on the, on the highways because at that time you could stop and search any car within 100 miles of the, air, of the border with no probable cause, no nothing. Mm-hmm. Yes, thing, things sure have changed. Uh, yeah, I think in our conversation last night, uh, you talked about uh, just loving the work, work, work in the river. I did. In fact, we all had nicknames there, and uh, my nickname on the border patrol was Zopalote, because they said I was always like a buzzer hanging around the river <laughs> waiting for something to cross. And, and uh, Bill Anderson, we we called him Mr. Clean because his uniform was immaculate. He 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 polished his badge, his leather, his uniform creases, and he could walk into a muddy cotton field and come back out. They'll have a sign on his shoes. <laughs> I know somebody like that. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're always there. Yes, yes. 
Um, and so, uh, tell us a little bit about. Um, you got a good, a, a few good war stories you can share with us about, uh, in your time in the patrol. Oh golly, I don't know where to start on those because uh, uh, we had we had lots of you know lots of things down there. I remember one time there, I had uh, like say I started working a lot of informants because uh, for one. I was still on probation and starting uh, driving up to Roma, and I saw a guy peeping over the fence. When I turned around, there was a whole cuddy of them broke like that. Well, I jumped over the fence and caught one of them, and I didn't realize I'd caught the main smuggler. Oh. And uh, so I'm trying to pat him down. He breaks loose from me and takes off through that heavy brush, and I couldn't catch him again, so I just pulled my pistol out and shot by his foot. <laughs> and that's the last time I saw him. And uh, about a week later, uh, Gilbert Lee, who was a station super, then came in and said, Hey, uh, I've got a guy I think will do a lot of good for us. But he said, He wants to meet you. And I said, Me? And he said, Yeah. He said, He doesn't know your name, but he described you to a T. So we go over and, and have a few beers with this guy. And finally, he gets me over to one side and tells me I'm the one that shot by his foot. And I said, We don't go harm. You ain't supposed to shoot at us. You ain't supposed to run either. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we we are pretty sure that the statute of limitations on that is is passed, right? I think so. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> wow. Uh, and um, did you uh, did you ever get in any kind of particular trouble yourself uh, for anything? But you know, I mean, obviously, something like that would have gotten any any one of us nowadays in oh, geez, trouble. Wouldn't it ever? Yeah, we, uh, we wouldn't no, have survived that. Why did 
you say that? He said, well, that, that other guy was talking to him. He told me, he said, that guy's Spanish is horrible. He said, I know he beats you up, gets you to confess. And uh, needless to say, that, that, that investigator was transferred out about two weeks later. Oh, all right. Well, uh, what, what's, that? what's that, sir? Go ahead. No, you, you, you go. No, I'd like to say that, that was uh, the kind of patrol it was in. They, they, they looked out for the people. Uh, I, I, I was extremely lucky to have the people that I work with. Yes, I was, and that's what I was going to say. I was going to ask you, you know, what, what was it like? I mean, what, what, what was your take on the way management was during those days and how they ran things from the sounds of it? It looks like they just wanted you to go out there and, uh, and do your job. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, you, you, you had very little supervision. And, you know, they'd say, okay, you're, you're sign cutting today. Or uh, I want you to work. I worked that river a lot of times completely by myself. And, uh, in fact, there was one night I was working alone. Now, Gilbert Lee, the station supervisor, was on duty, but he was in the office, and I walked into the river, and I saw this guy. Looked like he was trying to get frogs, but I noticed he wasn't getting any. So, mm -hmm. Gilbert called me in a little bit on a walkie-talkie and asked me how everything going on. I told him, I said, I think there's going to be a load. So, he shows up, and uh, we're sitting there watching. Here comes this car, pulls in. Moonlight night, we see the trunk come open, the tub comes out, we see a white sack goes out, and here comes this guy across the river. The wind is blowing from the south, I can smell the marijuana. Mm. And I asked Gilbert, I said, do we take him or do we wait and see who comes and gets him? He said, let's take him, and then we'll wait. And he said, you take him, I'll cover him in case the other guy's got a gun. So when the guy pulls the tub up on a bank, he turns his back, and I tackled him, and he stripped start naked. <laughs> and uh, so we pulled him up there, and Gilbert says, you know, his, his buddy don't even know you got him. Well, Gilbert was from Mississippi, and he spoke Spanish and English with a real heavy accent. And it was, Gilbert goes, that you? said, I'm Carlos, I'm working for customs. And he said, well, maybe you are, maybe you ain't. So we'll let one of the customs agents have you. So we handcuffed him walking to two or three bar fences with his hand handcuffed behind him. And uh, take him up, let him look at one of Oh, God, we should have told you guys about that. So you take him back down and let turn him loose till we got a main smuggler we want to get. And so, and we did, you know, and everything worked out good. But I don't think you could do things like that today. And probably not. <laughs> well, in fact, I know, I know we can't. I know we can't. Now, you mentioned um, one of the people that you were working with, uh, Gilbert Lee. And uh, there's something a little bit, little, little special about him, about him, right? He was one of your senior agents. Yes, he was. He was a station. He was a station supervisor when uh, he came in just before I took my five and a half. There's been another senior there, and he transferred out. And and Gilbert came in. He had been uh, stationed down in Lake Charles, Louisiana and came as a station supervisor and we had another senior by the name of Jack Neal and Jack had retired and we had a guy named Herman Rayleigh who came out of El Paso as a line supervisor and they, those guys looked out for their men, you know, they, uh, as Gilbert told me one time, said, if we get in trouble, 
we'll make up the story together and we'll go down with it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, uh, you had mentioned that um, uh, Gilbert Lee had a connection to, um, to Leonard Gilman in that whole hijacking incident in 1961, correct? Yes, well, like I said, he was one of those that was chosen to, uh, he, he didn't, he wasn't involved with that particular one. Right. He was just chosen to be one of the air marshals later, and that's when he, he told me he carried a snub nose with white cutters, so if he had to shoot somebody, it wouldn't go through. And, uh, and that's about, I, you know, and I, I knew a couple of guys that had been air marshals that had, uh, when they dismantled our air marshals that came in as customs agents. Up at Falcon, it was one up there, and I worked with him out here and worked with him quite a bit. Uh, he had been one of the original air marshals before they abandoned uh, abandoned the thing and then reinstated it after 9/11. Yeah, it was uh, j just afterwards. I remember years ago when all of a sudden there was a huge migration of border patrol agents going into the air marshals because they had opened it up for them. Isn't that interesting? How history just kind of comes around in a circle, huh? It does, and, and like I said, after 9-11, I was living up in Montana, or in Rome, rather, at the time, and and I got a call from her. I, was, I always wondered how I got that call, and I found out I got stated off. They were going around and asking the guys there, do you know anybody that's been a firearms instructor uh, so we can call them? You got their contact. Well, they called me and, and wanted me to come down to help train the air marshals, and I did. And uh, Eddie Bentley, who I had been in the academy with, he was one of the class coordinators, and I was lucky enough to work with him on classes. And we were running, we were working seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day, just putting as many through the firearms instructors as, as uh, qualified. We have them a week and send them out. Now, um, I know that you were, we were talking last night also, because I had asked you a, a question in a roundabout way, is and what is it that you enjoyed most about uh, about working the field? And there was a lot of things you mentioned, but one of the things you talked about is collecting intelligence and, and acting on it, because right now, a lot or most of operations in the Border Patrol include, uh, you know, are, is intelligence driven. And so you you were doing that way back in the day, right? You're collecting intel and acting on it and, and, and probably getting some good results. I started working with, and Gilbert got me into it because he started working really heavy into Mexico. Uh, at that time, we'd go into Mexico, we went with our, we wore our weapons, you know, not outside. I mean, we'd stick them under the clothes, but uh, we, and I started going with him and, and started lacking it and I started developing for us. But the funny thing then, I had business cards made up. And if I got an informant that I thought would be pretty good, I'd write a, uh, you know, write a date like two weeks in advance on the back of the card and give it to him and let him bring him over and let him work. Well, if one of the other agents found him, he'd look at that card. If that date, if that date was still good, he'd leave him alone. That way I could try a guy out. And if he was worth anything, then I'd go, ahead and go through the paperwork and get him paroled into the U.S. as, a, as, a, as an informant. And it worked out real good, but I, I, I mean, there is no way in the world you could get by with that today. But wait a minute, just so I understand this, if you found someone you thought was a good informant, you could give them a card with a date, and you're basically giving them a pass for that amount of time just to see if they, they had good workable intel, and if any other PA caught him, they could look at that card and go, okay, you, you're, you're good for now. Yeah. 
Holy exactly. crap. Are you exactly kidding right. me? Oh my gosh, that's, that's amazing. And, and like I said, if it turned out good, then, uh, of course, you'd have some that, you know, all hogs are good, and then they wouldn't do anything. Right, and right. So if they didn't do anything, I'd pick them up and send them back. But uh, that didn't happen very often, but I, that's, that's, like I said, it, it saved a lot of paperwork, and, and the guys, like I said then, they would look at that date. If that was good, they'd leave them alone. Oh my! I, I'm I'm just uh, I'm I'm just a guess that I, I can't believe that it's just amazing that how many how how many things you guys did back then to accomplish the same things we're doing now and in in, in in such a different way. But you know all that was going on already. I mean you you're you're out there gathering intel, acting on intel, working the traffic, doing all those things. But you had to do it with a whole lot less. I mean we complain now that we don't have enough equipment and, and things to accomplish the job. But back then, you know, you would do stuff like that. Man, that is truly classic pure gold old patrol right there. <laughs> well, I know one time I was working uh, up north of uh, Roma there, up close to the town of Mir. And Mir was uh, over in Mexico. It was the site of where back in uh, 1843 a bunch of uh, Texas Rangers and guys got captured. And the Mexican had them draw beans out of a pot, and everybody that drew a black, black bean got shot. Yeah. And uh, I was working up there, and I saw this, this young boy with three guys on the other side, and he's pointing around. So he leads them through the river. He takes his clothes off. He's just got on a pair of shorts, little jockey shorts. Leads them across the river. There's four of them. So I sneak around and get between them and the river, come up and get them, tell the guy to sit down. They immediately sit down. I got this guy, and and this poor little boy, he's about 14 years old. His whole butt of his shorts is out, and uh, he's begging me to let him go back there instead of taking him down to Roma and letting him walk through Miguel Alamon and help her walk the 10 miles or so back to here. So I take him over to the, the other four, and I tell him, I said, this guy did not snitch you all off or anything, but I said, look at him, I said, if I take him to Roma, where I'm going to take you guys, well, I sent them on an airlift at that time. Uh, I said, he's going to have to walk through town with a whole butt out of his shorts. <laughs> would, would you approve of me letting him go back here? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the kid, I said, okay, take off. So he waits back through the river, and he gets on the other side, and I said, okay, here comes the old finger in the air. He turns around in perfect English to thank you, mister. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, we know that uh, you know. I know that ta after talking to you, that um, you eventually ended up leaving the patrol. And I know you don't want to talk about the specifics of why that happened. Enough to say that you had a very legitimate that it, pretty much anybody, any one of us would have done the same thing at the time. And you moved on to a to a, a job called the Customs Patrol, which I had never heard of. Well, I'll give you a background. The Customs Patrol was founded in 1853. And uh, they were on the border. I, I knew, uh, well, I didn't know it. My daughter married into uh, some people here that they were, one of the uncles was a custom patrol officer back in the 30s. And they gave me one of his old canvas stop signs. And I still, well, I finally donated the museum here. But uh, custom patrol had been in position. They had abandoned it. They bring it back. They abandoned it. And after... 
created DEA when they took the customs agents and Bureau of Narcotics Drugs and, and created DEA, customs wanted a presence on the border, so they reinstated the custom patrol. And one of the guys that I had, Bill Anderson, who I'd worked with there and, and, and Rio Grande, was in El Paso, and they brought him out to, to Deming as a head of customs, and they hired a bunch of, they hired people from everywhere. Mm -hmm. Some of them were too good. And uh, they had about, oh, about 10 or 12 guys, and, and he'd been trying to get me to come over by that time I was working the venture program for the, for the war patrol. And I finally, and like I said, I finally got enough, and, and uh, I came over, and I, because he'd been trying, I said, you still got to open uh, in here for the patrol, custom patrol, and he just opened his drawer, pulled out a form already filled out, and signed there. And uh, the patrol director in El Paso had been half the people in, in customs came out of border patrol, which yeah. was surprising to me. Yeah, wow. just about every one of them that I run into, some way or another, came out of the border patrol and, and went on into the things and. and then they wanted to reduce the station down. We had about 10 guys, so they came in and was going to move us. And instead of going on government time, their union came up with a thing they would use customs time. Well, it come down to, it was uh, four guys, five guys of us here, or six of us, I guess. And, and I, I had less time in custom time than the others, so they left four and asked me where I wanted to go, and they, uh, they offered me Presidio in Beaumont, Texas, and I took Presidio. Mm -hmm. I was down there about three or four months, the supervisor here left, and I put in for it and came back here as a station supervisor for Custom Patrol. And uh, at that time, the port, like I say, the patrol director had been an old board patrolman, and he came over and he wanted to know, said, uh, you know, this the station's not doing good, what what can we do? What what would you like to do? I said the first thing I'd like to do is get out of these uniforms, get rid of these marked units, get unmarked cars, and let's start working information. And he said, let's go for it. So I went over. After that, I went over to the border patrol. I told him. I said, I know there's been friction. From now on, we're not going to be patrolling the border. We're going to be working narcotics information. And if we have information that a load is coming across, I want a border patrol right there with us. Yeah. And so, so, so we got along pretty, pretty well at that. Excellent. Now, um, I want you to tell us, tell the the everybody listening what you told me about how you created a job for yourself. Uh, you remember when we, we talked about how you talked about how you uh, they asked you to get that grant and um. And oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, after I retired from, from customs, uh, I ran for sheriff, and uh, a friend of mine, he and I known each other for good, he, he already worked for the sheriff's department, and this is a heavy Democratic county, and he was a Democrat, and I was a Republican, and he won. And uh, we both talked about, you know, I told him, I said, if I win, you ain't going anywhere. And he said, well, if I win, I want you to come work for me. Well, at the time, I was uh, head of security out here for Pinkerton uh, out at the airport because they were developing some of those drones, and they were trying to work some of those things out. And uh, 
uh, every time I'd see him, when are you coming to work for me? So one day there I was walking across and, and he was standing outside, hey, when are you going to come work for me? And I said, how about right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, the only thing I can offer you is a deputy position. I said, I don't care. So he put me as a uniform deputy and then he came to me and, and said, uh, we tried to write up some grants, said if we can get a grant approved, they will give us two new vehicles out from the state and pay a narcotics investigator half his salary for two years. Said, would you write a grant up? And I said, sure. So I wrote the grant up and I put in what the investigator needed and I wrote it where the only person there could apply for it would be. <laughs> because I put in, uh, you know, training for this and this and going through, you know, I just, <laughs> I listed everything I had. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and the only one other guy I put in for it, uh, me and him, and, and uh, I got it. And uh, so first thing I did, I told the sheriff, I said, okay, I, first thing I want to do, I said, I want to go back work over there with customs. And he said, why do you want to do that? You know, you retired from them. I said, because they have a program now, if I'm involved with any seizure they make, we can come in and get the proceeds. We can get vehicles, we can get cars, we can do He said, okay, well, what are you going to do? So I did. And uh, I had a brand new Ram chart that they bought. So after working about three months, I came to him and I said, listen, uh, in about a week, I'll turn that Ram charger back. I got a car coming out of seizure I'm going to use for my, for my vehicle. He said, what you got coming out? And I said, a Cadillac. <laughs> <laughs> So he stood there and he said, uh, after he saw the Cadillac, he said, have you got any other cars that's coming out? And I said, I got a real nice Oldsmobile that's going to be in about a week. He said, well, I think I'll turn in my car and take it. I said, how would that be? I said, you're the sheriff, whatever you want to do. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, you, uh, you, you've had about a, what, 45 years of, uh, of law enforcement career behind you? Well, 30. Uh, I worked. 10 years with the Border Patrol, 12 years with Customs, and 8 years with the Sheriff's Department. Mm -hmm. And then I was briefly a town marshal up in Cali, Wyoming, for a while until after 9 11 I went in and, and uh, trained the air marshals and then the commercial pilots. That's excellent. Now, February of last year, I received a signed copy of a book called El Lobo Verde. And so uh, talk to us a little bit about how you came about to end up writing a book based on Border Patrol adventures, which I love, well, by the way. Yeah, it, it was something I, I kind of always had my mind into, and uh, uh, by that time I had ran for sheriff again and got defeated, and the old boy that, uh, that took my place, he and I worked together, he'd been a detective here, like I said, this is a heavy Democratic Party, and and he was going to demote me from captain down to patrol officer. And state law says he can't do that. You know, him and the county manager did it anyway. And so I just went on sick leave till I had my eight years in, pulled the plug, got a couple of lawyers and sued the, sued the county and won. And a federal judge told him, so you can't do that. But And that's where I started. You know, I had a lot of time on my hands and it was write the book or shoot somebody and I thought well mm. okay so I drew heavy on on my experiences in the border patrol other than like I said I had to spice it up a little bit with shooting which didn't happen but 
the rest of the stuff is, is a lot of it. Anything that does deal with dope in that thing has got probably 60 to 70% truth about it. Mm-hmm. Well, you can feel it when you're reading the book. I uh, I went through it, you know, and uh, following the adventures of, of, of Jeff Larson and uh, and uh, all his uh, misadventures and everything else. And, you know, you've, you I can see that you draw heavily from your experience. You're talking about how, you know, you had told me that a... Uh, that a Mexican official had told you don't go to Mexico unarmed, right? That's true. Uh, the, the commandante there in, in Comargo, he, he had flat told me, and, and, and when I'd go over, I, in fact, I was over one day, he had a little cantina on, on the outside of Comargo. And we're sitting in there one day, and here come these two guys in from Rio Grande, and I guess they didn't know, didn't think anybody knew who I was, so they started mouthing around about the Border Patrol and General, me in particular. And, and finally he gets up, goes over and gets his 38 Super. 1911 comes over and tells him, says, you want to start some crap in here? You started with me. And then he comes and says, they scurry out of the bar. He comes down and sits down. And I tell him, I said, boy, I sure like your grips. He had those gold grips on his pistol. And he said, you got your gun? And I said, well, certainly, you know. And I pulled out my 1911. And, uh, he got over and got a screwdriver, took my wooden rips off of my gun, and put his on mine, on, on mine, and handed oh, wow. it back to me. <laughs> and said, "Don't ever, don't come to Mexico unarmed." That's exactly right. And, and I remember <laughs> Gilbert Lee had a habit of he'd go down to my colony. We had one unmarked car. Well, he'd go down to for whatever business out, he'd go to one of those duty-free, buy him about a half a case of uh, Jim Bean, drive into Mexico, come up on the Mexican side, and come out at, at uh, Rio Grande there, and uh, nobody asked him what he was bringing in, so he didn't have to falsify anything. <laughs> you know, hey, Bill, we're going, you know. So he and I had gone down there, well, he'd gone through one day, and he came to me, and he said, man, I got stopped on Mexico to a checkpoint, and he said, it took me two hours to talk my way out of that, so... <laughs> He'd gone over to the head of customs and, and Miguel Alamon and told him he wanted a permit and told him what the problem was. And the guy said, no, I'll take care of it. He said, well, you know, no, he said, no, 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 don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. So about a month later, he and I were down and playing clothes and I had to go get chewed out by the chief. And we were both armed. We went into, he stopped and got his booze and we went into to Mexico there and ate. We're driving up on the mega, I'm driving. We come up and there's a checkpoint there, and I can see the guy start waving us over, you know, and, and uh, Gilbert says, oh, hell, you know, so I, I knew we should have got a permit, so it's going to take us two hours to talk our way. Well, we get up about 30 yards from the guy, the guy comes to attention, salutes, and waves us through. <laughs> You you mentioned last night that um, a few vehicles that you used while you were in the patrol. Can you mention those again for us? Because uh, a lot of us lo love to hear about the kind of rides that we get to drive. Well, I know uh, the first thing we had those old international scouts, which were real. I thought were pretty good vehicles, and uh, that was at that time when we didn't have the jeeps. We used those international scouts. We had a big old Dodge carry all, and uh, then we had uh, some Chevrolet squad cars. With that bubble gum mounted right on the top, mm -hmm. and then in '69 they came out with those uh, Plymouths, 
Russell's 440 Plymouth. And uh, I was working with a trainee, and they called me to head off a car, and I could take this side road and, and cut him off. And I cut him off, and the trainee came in the next day and quit. <laughs> because, like I said, I, I put my foot in that 440 Plymouth would run. And, uh, Ever since then, Border Patrol agents have been pushing the limits on our vehicles all the way ever since then. <laughs> well, I remember when I was still working here, Jerry Duncan, who had been the uh, uh, PG instructor when I went through the Border Patrol, opened the Demi station when we came here in 71. And there was only five of us up here. The main station was at Columbus. And, and then after Jerry took over, he had a thing that, you, you know, you guys could take a bowling ball and make it square. <laughs> <laughs> So he, when he retired, they, they took a bowling ball and squared it and gave it to him. Oh, that's that's excellent. That's classic. So, uh, unfortunately, I mean, I would like to do a few hours with you because it has been so great. But uh, uh, as we wind down the interview, could you talk to us about uh, your new project that you're working on right now, your new book? Well, what I'm doing now, like I say, Global Energy was kind of, you know, touched on some things, what this book is, and it's in the publisher's hands now. They think it'll be out in around six months. It's called Border Tales, and and those, there's little short stories from the Border Patrol on into Customs as a deputy sheriff, and even some, I think, and when I was training the air marshals, but uh, they're all, they're true stories, but they're little short stories. It's going to be, oh, it's... See me, I forget now what, uh, how many pages it is, but it's something like 53,000 words. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's supposed to go on sale in about uh, oh, seven, eight months. Uh, that's what they're looking at right now. And I think they want me to get fancy and start pushing. But uh, I've just sent, sent the, the manuscript off, and we've had some discussions about what I wanted. And... One of the things I, I, I told them that I did want was a dedication. And at first I had it uh, at the back of the book, and the guy said, well, you know, dedication is supposed to go in the front. And I said, okay, well, we'll, 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 we'll go along that. But uh, what I did, I said uh, on the dedication, dedicated to all law enforcement officers, especially the men and women of the U.S. Border Patrol. Mm. Without the training and experience I obtained from the USBP, I'd stop, I'd probably still be driving a truck or punching cows. <laughs> Amen to that, sir. Well, I don't know what I expected from this interview, but I'll tell you what, it surpassed all my expectations. As far as, you know, I'm a, I am a, uh, a fan and, uh, and a lover of all things Old Patrol and uh, our history and heritage and legacy. And man, you, you embodied all those things all in one place. Uh, along uh, along with those shenanigans we were talking about. <laughs> well, like I said, uh, the, the uh, border tales were dwell into a lot of those things uh, uh, a little more in detail. And mm -hmm. uh, like I said, there is no fiction in it. It's all, they're all true. And all I can say is thank goodness for the... Uh, <laughs> most of the people are dead now or... Uh, 
time limits they can't come back and prosecute me well amen to that amen to that and now uh, with that we will bring this amazing interview to a close and uh again uh uh mr daniels i cannot tell you what an honor and a privilege it has been to record these words from you uh, for uh, everyone, uh, Border Patrol agents, past, present, and future, to hear and uh, and see what it was like to to live what you lived, which was an amazing, amazing career in law enforcement. Well, I appreciate it. But like I said, I have a lot of help, and, I, and a lot of people uh, was in there with me. All right, so well, thank you, and God bless you, and uh, maybe we can come back for round two sometime in the future. Well, if you ever come to Deming, stop in and give me a call and we'll have coffee. Ah, now that sounds great. Have a good day, sir. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Well, Old Patrollers, this concludes the very first epic episode of the Old Patrol HQ podcast, our magnificent interview with Donnie Daniels. I hope you guys enjoyed it. A little trek through the good old days of our history, heritage, and legacy with obviously quite a few shenanigans along the way. I hope to God, for Donnie's sake, that um, <laughs> the statute of limitations is passed on most of that stuff. But I look forward to seeing where this takes us. And uh, so have a good day. And remember, there ain't no patrol like the old patrol. Honor first, honor always, and happy 96th birthday to the finest law enforcement agency on the planet. Cheers.